Stark's earliest, Bloody Plowman, Cour de Boeuf, which means heart of beef, Dog's Snout, Razor Russet, Nuntit Bastard, Leather Coat, Rusty Coat, and Glockenopel. These aren't IPAs from your local craft brewery or the lineup for the worst music festival ever. They are, in fact, kinds of apple. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. What's more wholesome and iconic than an apple? In the Bible, Eve ate an apple, and now half of us have to have periods and childbirth and crap. In fairness to apples, the Bible just says fruit. It was Milton's Paradise Lost that declared that that fruit was an apple, because the Latin word for apple, malus, M-A-L-U-S, is also the Latin word for evil. There's the Greek myth of Atalanta, who would only marry the man who could beat her in a foot race. So Aphrodite helped Melanion cheat by dropping golden apples that Atalanta stopped to pick up. An apple fell on the head of Isaac Newton, leading to the discovery of gravity, prior to which everyone just weighed a lot less. The record label that gave the world the Beatles and one of the largest consumer electronics companies in the world both use an apple as their logo. Bonus fact, the Apple computer logo has a bite taken out of it so that it won't be mistaken for a cherry, which I didn't think there was a great danger of anyway. But it is not a nod to Alan Turing, the famous mathematician who helped Britain win World War II, but was hounded by that same government for being gay and ultimately took his own life with a poisoned apple. Steve Jobs and company repeatedly said they wished it was that clever. We say something is as American as apple pie, and even though Ralph Waldo Emerson dubbed apples the American fruit, the tasty sweet malus domestica as you're used to it is about as native to North America as white people. That's not to say there's nothing of the genus malus in the New World. There was the crab apple, a small, hard, exceedingly tart apple which is better used for adding the natural thickener pectin to preserves than actually eating. The story of apples actually begins in Kazakhstan, in Central Asia east of the Caspian Sea. Malus siversii is a wild apple native to Kazakhstan's Tian Shan Mountains, where they'd been growing for millions of years and can still be found fruiting today. There's evidence of Paleolithic people harvesting and using native crab apples around 750,000 years ago, give or take a week. The original wild apples grew in apple forests at the foot of the mountains, full of different sizes, shapes, and flavors, most of them bad. At least until agriculture and intentional cultivation kicked in. Kazakhstan is, understandably, swelling with pride of its fruity history. The former capital city of Almaty claimed the honor of birthplace of the apple about a hundred years ago. And that seems like a suitable sobriquet, since the name Almaty was previously recorded as Alma-Ata, which translates from Kazakh as father of the apples. Though in Latin, Alma means mother or nurturer, which feels more fitting, but that's beside the point. The origin story was not without controversy, but 
what am I here for if not to teach the controversy? In 1929, Russian scientist Nikolai Vavilov first traced the apple genome. He identified the primary ancestor of most cultivars to be the ancient apple tree Malus Seversi. His theory was disputed for about 90 years until DNA testing and a full sequencing of the genome in 2010. It was probably birds and traveling mammals that initially transported apple seeds out of Kazakhstan long before humans started to cultivate them by, you know, eating the apples and pooping out the seeds somewhere else. By 1500 BC, apple seeds had been carried throughout Europe by the Greeks, Etruscans, and Romans. Bloody Romans, what have they ever done for us? I mean, apart from sanitation, medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system, and public health, what have the Romans really ever done for us? Oh yeah, the apples. The Romans discovered apples growing in Syria and were central in dispersing them throughout the rest of the world from there, along the Silk Road as a means of transport from east to west. The Romans were a fair hand at grafting, taking a cutting from a known apple variety and attaching it to the rootstock, that's the young roots and part of the trunk, from another tree, but more on that later. As such, the Romans started to grow apples in Europe and Britain that were bigger, sweeter, and tastier than any before. And let's not overlook variety. There are a whopping 2,200 British cultivars of Malus domestica alone. Apples arrived in the New World, first with the Spanish in the warm parts, and then with English settlers in the cooler bits, which, when I say it out loud, does sound like it was done on purpose. Ask any American child how apples spread across the nascent U.S., and they'll tell you it was thanks to Johnny Appleseed. We tend to learn about him around the same time we learn about tall tales, i.e. American folklore. Stories like the giant lumberjack Paul Bunyan and his blue ox, or John Henry, who could hammer railroad spikes in ahead of a moving train. So it can be a little tricky to parse out what about Johnny Appleseed is true and what isn't. Don't feel bad, though, if you don't know. A friend of mine just learned the other year that narwhals are actually real when she wanted to be one in a cryptid-themed burlesque show. Johnny Appleseed, real name John Chapman, was a real person, though naturally some aspects of his life have been mythologized over time. Details are sparse on his early life, but we know that Chapman was born in Massachusetts in 1774 and planted his first apple trees in the Allegheny Valley of Pennsylvania during his mid-twenties. He then began traveling west through the Ohio Territory, planting trees as he went. These were frontier times. We're talking about a good 70 years before the Transcontinental Railroad, so much of the area Chapman went through didn't yet have white settlers in it. But Chapman seemed to have a knack for predicting where those future settlers would settle and planting orchards in those spots. Chapman was also a devout follower of the mystical teachings of Swedish theologian Emanuel Swedenborg, and he tried to spread Swedenborgian doctrine as well. People were open to some parts of it, like kindness to all animals, 
even the unpleasant ones. The apples that Chapman brought to the frontier were completely different from the apples available at modern grocery stores. They weren't for eating, but for making hard apple cider. Cider was a mainstay item for the same reason people back then would drink beer at breakfast. It was safer than the water supply. This didn't actually apply as much in the not-yet-destroyed frontier as it did back in jolly old England, but I guess old habits die hard. I've often wondered why cider is such a staple alcoholic beverage in the UK, but has only resurfaced in the last 20 years or so here in the States, where we have to specify hard cider because the word cider normally means a glorious, unctuous, flavorful, unfiltered apple juice that you can only get for like a month in the fall. It's thanks to the colossal failure that was that noble experiment, Prohibition, when some people that didn't like drinking told the rest of us we couldn't either. Up until Prohibition, an apple grown in America was far less likely to be eaten than to wind up in a barrel of cider, wrote Michael Pollan in The Botany of Desire. In rural areas, cider took the place of not only wine and beer, but of coffee, tea, juice, and even water. The cider apples are small and unpleasant to eat, so they were really only good for cider making. As such, during Prohibition, FBI agents often chopped down cider apple trees, effectively erasing cider from the landscape, along with Chapman's true history. But Johnny Appleseed Chapman wouldn't know anything about all that. Within his own lifetime, though, tales of his activities began to circulate. Most of these focused on his wilderness skills and his remarkable physical endurance. Chapman cut an eccentric figure. He wore a sack with holes for his head and arms rather than a proper shirt. And after he'd worn through multiple pairs of shoes, he gave up on them entirely and just went barefoot. Perhaps his most distinct feature, the one always included in drawings, apart from a bag of apple seeds, was his soup pot, just about his only possession, which he wore on his head like a hat. Starting in 1792, the Ohio Company of Associates made an offer of 100 acres of land to anyone willing to make a homestead on the wilderness beyond Ohio's first permanent settlement. These homesteads had to be for real, no pitching a tent and saying, where's my land? To prove their homesteads were the real deal, settlers were required to plant 50 apple trees and 20 peach trees in three years. Since an average apple tree took roughly 10 years to bear fruit, you really wouldn't bother unless you were in it for the long haul. Now, Johnny Appleseed might have looked like a crazy hermit, but Chapman realized that if he could do the difficult work of planting these orchards, he could then sell them on for a handsome profit to incoming frontiersmen. On this week's episode of Frontier Flipper, Johnny plants an orchard. Again! Wandering from Pennsylvania to Illinois, Chapman would advance just ahead of settlers, cultivating orchards that he would then sell to them when they arrived, and head on to more undeveloped land. That was very clever. What wasn't clever was Chapman growing apples from seed at all. 
this is the bit about grafting in case you were jumping around looking for it. Statistically, at least one person was really waiting for this part. Apple trees don't grow true to type. That means if you were to plant, for instance, red delicious seeds in your backyard, you wouldn't get the same red delicious apples. Not that you'd want to, but more on that later too. I know, what's with the teasing today? Instead, planting and breeding means matching a scion to a rootstock. The scion is the fruiting part of the tree, most of what we actually see above the ground. The rootstock is everything that goes in the ground and the first few inches of the trunk. Buds from one variety are attached to the rootstock of another, and they grow into a tree that will produce the same apples as the tree the cutting was taken from. You can think of the whole thing a bit like cloning, and you can continue to propagate cuttings and clones of that one tree that you know gives really good apples, pretty much endlessly. But when you're growing from a seed, you're subject to the whims of sexual reproduction. And sometimes, just as two good people as parents crank out a middling human being, the apple that you get may not be anything like the apple that you started with, based on what tree fertilized it. Now that's not to say that grafting eliminates the need for a pollinator. You do still need other fruit trees around. If you don't have good pollination, you can end up with misshapen or small, unattractive fruit, says Jim McPherson, director of the Wenatchee Extension Office. Up to 10% of an orchard can be pollinators, and most today are crabapple trees. Apple trees cannot normally pollinate themselves. Unlike, say, peaches, which can and do self-pollinate, predictably producing peaches virtually identical to the parents, the viable seeds, or pips as they're called in the industry, will produce apples that don't resemble the parents. And this requirement for pollination is how there have come to be so many varieties in the world, at least 20,000. And that's a conservative estimate. For context, there are two commercial varieties of banana and one of kiwifruit. Grafting was an established way of propagating apples and was commonly done in New England. So why didn't Chapman do that? Apart from the fact that it's easier to travel with just a bag of seeds and planting is faster than grafting, as a member of the Swedenborgian church, Chapman was forbidden from cutting two trees to make a new tree, as this was thought to cause the plants undue suffering. John, Johnny Appleseed Chapman, died in Fort Wayne, Indiana in 1845, having planted apple trees as far west as Illinois and Iowa. A century later, in 1948, Disney solidified his legend with an animated version of his life. The cartoon emphasized his Christian faith, but conveniently left out all the Swedenborgian stuff. Speaking of leaving things out, there's a lot that I want to make sure I don't leave out of this week's episode. There is some pretty big news on the horizon. After four years as a completely independent podcast, Your Brain on Facts is joining the Airwave Media Network. I am still in complete and total control of the show, but now I'm going to get help with promotion and sponsorships. So less work in that area means more time for making the content. 
What that means for the listener is not much, really just hearing a tag for the network at the beginning of the show and a plug for it at the end. So your Wyboff experience will continue as it always has. Now, not everyone has the same positive experience with your brain on facts, and I want to share with you the most marvelous one-star review for the Your Brain on Facts book. Speaking of reviews, I had forgotten to check Goodreads to see if there were any, and there were any, so I'll get to them in subsequent episodes. But I've got to read this bad review from Jones on Amazon, one-star Leftists will love it, patriots won't. Like Wikipedia, this book sources from sites like HuffPro and other rags. It also inexplicably censors the word gypsy in a section about squaws. If you're woke, then you'll love it. Oh, do I wish I could send this person a handwritten thank you card. But I did the next best thing, and I put it on a t-shirt. Go to yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch to be ported over to our Tee Public store, where you can also purchase the Russian Warship Go F Yourself t-shirt design raising money for the Ukraine Red Cross. It is far and away the most popular shirt I've ever designed. And if supporting the show financially is something that you're up for, as a one-off, you can go to coffee.com, K-O hyphen F-I, dot com slash your brain on facts for a one-time donation or join in our patreon like our newest member paul and our all that and brains two members david n and emication likely who just the other day got a bonus mini episode all about why there are no monkeys native to north america bet you never thought to wonder that before but now if you're like me you're dying for the answer so you can check that out by joining the members at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. One of the perks of being on our Patreon is getting early access to the episodes. But if you want a sneak peek, you can also follow my TikTok, which is at Moxie Labouche. Because as soon as I hit 1,000 followers, I'll be allowed to go live. And so I'm going to live stream some of the recording of each episode. When will this happen? Your guess is as good as mine. I don't have a really set production schedule, but probably sometime over the weekend, you'll just have to follow me to know for sure. And now a word from our sponsors. Leadership, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starfleet Leadership Academy. It's ongoing mission to develop leaders through Star Trek, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. A Star Trek podcast told through the lens of leadership development. Subscribe today. The Starfleet Leadership Academy. Speaking of varieties, as well we might, what would you guess was the most popular apple variety for, say, the past 7,500 years. The apple whose name is half lying, but unfortunately it's lying about the important half, the Red Delicious. They are the most iconic apple across most of the world. Don't believe me? Just check emoji packs in other countries. Their appearance is the whole reason these apples exist. 
with their deep, even red color and dimpled bottom that looks so enticing in the produce department. It's also the reason they suck and are terrible. They taste of wet cardboard and have the mouthfeel of resentment. Their flavor and texture were sacrificed for botanical vanity and shippability. Even apple growers hate them. Mike Bick, who tends 80 acres of apples at Uncle John's Cider Mill, admits he does grow some Red Delicious, but just to add color to some of his ciders, he won't eat them. The Red Delicious was first called the Hawkeye, and one Jesse Hyatt found it growing as a random sapling on his Iowa farm sometime around 1870. The fruit that eventual tree produced was sweet, but it wasn't red, rather red and yellow striped, kind of like an heirloom tomato, or as they called them back in the 1870s, tomatoes. It was introduced to the market in 1874, and the rights to the Hawkeye apple were sold to the Stark Brothers Nursery, whose owner thought it was the best apple he'd ever tasted. By 1914, Stark had renamed the variety Red Delicious, and over time produced a fruit with less yellow and more red year over year. It also gained its buxom top-heavy shape and five little nubs on the bottom. As with any product, it took a hefty shovelful of marketing for Red Delicious to gain a following, but gain it did. Current estimates have Red Delicious being 90% of the apple crop at one point. That point happened in the 1950s, thanks to that force of nature, changes in buying habits. Pre-World War II, people would buy food that they didn't grow themselves straight from the farm or at a local market. But then the modern grocery store with its cold storage and the refrigerated truck courtesy of Frederick Jones came along. Bigger stores need to move more product, and a big pyramid of shiny, sports car red apples by the front window will really bring the punters in. Growers could sell them to packers, who in turn sold them to the grocery chains, which also fueled a change in their taste. Orchardists bred and crossbred the Red Delicious to get that perfect shape and color, uniformity and resilience to handling and shipping. They just left off tiny considerations, very minor concessions really, like taste and texture. But change is afoot again. People began to realize that you can have an apple in your pack lunch or the big bowl at the fancy hotel reception desk that you'd actually want to eat. Now we're all about those sweet tangos, Brayburns, and Honeycrisps. Unwilling or unable to admit defeat, however, the Red Delicious is still out there. But like a lot of has-beens, it's seeing more success abroad than at home, and they're exported to the Western Pacific Rim, Mexico, and parts of Europe. You can't rely on random saplings popping up, so new varieties of apple take a lot of people a lot of time and effort to say nothing of a robust research and development budget. Take Washington State University Tree Fruit Research and Extension Center, for example. In 1981, 
now-retired horticulturist Bruce Barrett set out to create an apple bred for flavor and long storage instead of for appearance, to compete with the Fuji that had arrived from Japan and the Gala from New Zealand, or Gala, however you like to do it. Like breeding animals, you start with two parents with known traits, then selectively breed for the traits you want over the course of several generations. You have to have the patience of a Buddhist monk, since apple trees take at least three or four years to bear fruit, so it's four to five years before you know whether it worked or not. Barrett needed that patience to eventually create the apple that actually made mainstream, even international news in 2019, the Cosmic Crisp. And they are no small potatoes either. There's a French language joke in there. I'll let you put it together. The marketing budget alone is $10 million. A $10 million marketing budget for an apple. Cosmic crisps are mostly a darkish red with yellowy speckles reminiscent of stars. Its website, yes, the apple has its own website, says, The large, juicy apple has a remarkably firm and crisp texture. Some say it snaps when you bite into it. The Cosmic Crisp flavor profile is the perfect balance of sweet and tart, making it ideal for snacking, baking, cooking, juicing, or any other way you like to enjoy apples. Hire me for voiceovers at moxielabouche.com. Get lightning-fast voiceovers because I one time got struck by lightning. The very first Cosmic Crisp seed began in 1997 with pollen from a Honeycrisp flower applied by hand to the stigma of an enterprise. Racy stuff, I know. I should have issued a content warning. Honeycrisps, as we know, are lovely, and enterprise apples were known for their disease resistance and long storage life. Storage life cannot be overvalued because an apple has to be as good in late spring as it was when it was picked in the fall, as most to all of the apples you buy are. Yep, all apples are picked at once and sold on for months to come. Holding up in winter storage is one of Malice Domestica's best features. If this principle bothers you, though, uh, don't look up harvesting oranges for juice. That's positively depressing. After two years growing up in a greenhouse, the first Cosmic Crisp trees were planted, and a few years after that, fruit happened. That was when, according to Barrett, the real work began. He'd go through the orchard, randomly picking apples and taking a bite. Most were terrible, but when I found one with good texture and flavor, I'd pick 10 or 20 of them. Then I put them in cold storage to see how they would hold up after a few months, he told Popular Science in 2018. Barrett's team would compare the apples for crispness, acidity, firmness, how well it's stored, and on and on and on, to discover which trees to cross with which, just to start the whole cycle all over again. They weren't testing only Honeycrisp and Enterprise crosses, but lots of crisp varieties. Honeycrisp was just the one that worked. It took until 2017, a full 20 years after the first seed went into the ground, for Cosmic Crisp seeds to become available to growers, 
to say nothing of the fruit reaching the public. The project actually outlived Barrett's participation, because he retired in 2008 and turned everything over to WSU horticultural professor Kate Evans. There's still the question of why. Why spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars to create a new apple? This goes far beyond developing a product to sell and make money. It was about saving an entire region's industry. The Pacific Northwest farmed red delicious apples like they were going out of style. And in the 90s, they were going out of style. In the last three years of the decade, farmers lost around $760 million. With fields full of fruit, fewer and fewer folks wanted to fork over their funds for. That was the problem that Barrett set out to solve. They needed an apple that had it all, full of flavor with a crunchy bite and movie star good looks. By the end of 2019, Washington farmers were growing 12,000 acres of Cosmic Crisp trees, and there was talk of Cosmic Crisp having a good chance at taking over the market. Now, if you have a bit of land and want to grow your own Cosmic Crisp, you're going to have to wait even longer than usual. It's only available to growers in Washington State for the first 10 years to give the growers that it was created for an advantage. After all, it was on their orchards that the experiment took place. And just in case you need a reminder, you can't plant seeds to get a tree that tastes like the fruit that you ate to get the seeds in the first place. Don't worry though, just five more years to go. But you can't, like, own a tree, man. Well, I can, but that's because I'm not a penniless hippie. Sorry, future on the moment, it happens from time to time. But the point still stands. How can you lay claim to a variety of plant? Because this is America, and we've never seen a person, place, thing, or idea that we didn't want to legally own and monetize. We're talking about patents. And before I go any further, do you have any idea what a hassle it is to search for Apple patents and not get results about Apple the company? According to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, a plant patent is granted to an inventor who has invented or discovered and asexually reproduced a distinct and new variety of plant other than a tuber-propagated plant or a plant found in an uncultivated state. The grant, which lasts for 20 years from the date of filing the application, protects the inventor's rights to exclude others from asexually reproducing, selling, or using the plant so reproduced. So, if you make a variety of plant that no one else has ever made, or at least no one else has ever patented, you have ultra-dibs for 20 years, and no one else is supposed to breed, sell, or do anything else with plants of that variety. Plant patents first became a thing in the early 1930s, a fine time in American agriculture. Cough, dust bowl, cough. First granted to Henry Bosenberg for a climbing or trailing rose. Since then, thousands of plant patents have been granted, and that includes apples. Apples as intellectual property. The beloved Honeycrisp was patented in the late 1980s by the University of Minnesota. 
the Honeycrisp blossomed in popularity, pun, you know, pretty much intended, among consumers, both grocery shoppers and growers. Nurseries would sell the trees to anyone who asked, but since it was patented, growers would have to pay a royalty of $1 per tree to the university until the patent had expired. With an average size of 50 acres per orchard and 36 trees per acre, that comes to 1800 bucks, which isn't too, too bad. A much tighter rein was kept on the university's patented Miniesca, which produces the Sweet Tango Apple. Only a small group of growers have been given license to grow the Sweet Tango, and they also have to pay a royalty. And in addition to the patent, the university has multiple trademarks registered, so anyone who tries to sell an apple under that name or a very similar name could find themselves in court. Now, how about them apples? Hey, at least I waited till the end. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Let's look into some of those unusual apple names from the header, like the dog snout, which is shaped more like an upside-down pear or maybe a quince, and kind of resembles the snout of a dog, I guess. I was expecting at least as much from the Cour de Boeuf, which means beef heart, as I've previously grown ox heart, beets, and they're pretty much cardiac heart-shaped. But the Cour de Boeuf is neither heart-shaped nor is it even completely red. So I hold out hope for the bloody plowman. Legend says, that in the 19th century, a Scottish gamekeeper shot down a plowman who was stealing some apples. And those apples, thrown onto the trash heap, sprouted a seedling, and that's how the bloody plowman lived on. Remember, you can always find the script and the source links at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe.